All right, Philippians chapter 2, find your place if you would, and go ahead and stand with me tonight. We're going to continue our series uh, on Words Matter, and just looking at some topics related to our mouths, and, and addressing some things perhaps in our own hearts that can be better helped from God's Word. So tonight... Uh, We're going to take our text. Last week we were in the book of James, and tonight we'll be in Philippians chapter 2. And we'll begin our reading at verse 12. Verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings, and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Let's let's say a word of prayer tonight. Lord, thank you for the chance to be together tonight, for the programs uh, that are taking place around the building, Iwana Youth, and of course the nursery programs. And Father, we're thankful for our church family, time we could share tonight around your word and ask that you'd speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray that you'd help each of us to find a point of application and clarity and a measure of help as a result of our time, both under the preaching of your word, reflection on it, and then the fellowship and prayer time to follow in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Last week we looked at the thought, and the big idea was that words often come out of our mouths that we sometimes wish we could retract. And we say something and we think, where did that come from? And I wish I could pull that back. Why did that come from me? Um, If we have a modicum of self-awareness, we've all experienced something like that before. And if we want to fix our words... We looked at this thought last week. It's not always our words that are the problem. It's our hearts from which they came, from which they come. And Jesus makes that very clear to us, uh, that out of the abundance of our heart, that's where our mouth speaks. And so if we want to fix the words that we say, then we need to fix specific areas of our heart. And so that was the big idea last week. And I want to take that idea and that platform and apply that to specific areas in each of our hearts and tonight specifically the idea of complaining. Have you ever complained before? Okay, so you're all liars, and so we'll talk about that maybe next week. I don't know. We'll see. Tonight I was getting ready for church, and um, I got down a clean press white shirt. It's in good shape. I got one of my nicer ones because I was going to be on the platform tonight, and um, set it on the bed, and somehow, I don't know how, I got blood all over the sleeve, like all over the, you know, the, the right arm sleeve. And I, you know, I'm like, Elizabeth, where did the, where did the blood come from? Like I, you know, and I had somehow cut myself on my leg somewhere and, and blood got on my shirt. So go figure. So I was frustrated and, you know, she helped me clean it up. And so I got another white shirt and she was serving chili for dinner tonight. <laughs> Don't judge me. All right. So I thought to myself, I'm going to be really careful I'm preaching tonight, and I have my second white shirt on that's clean and pressed. And I thought I did pretty good. 
And so I'm really guarded, and I went into the mirror before we came, and there was chili, but it had splattered somewhere up here, you know. And I'm just like, come on, you know. And I am just, re- I told Elizabeth, I am preaching on complaining tonight, and I am ready to just let it rip right now. And I'm so frustrated um, by this. And I come into church, I had freshly shined shoes, and then Keith Rash walked by me, and he walked on my right shoe cap. And I was like, Keith, I thought we were friends, you know. So it's been a rough night for me. I'm holding it together barely just because I'm preaching on this subject. Uh, Complaining can be difficult for us. I think one of the best examples of complaining in the Bible, and one that maybe all of our minds would go to at some point if if we were discussing this, is, of course, the children of Israel. If we were to make a poster for complaining, we might put their pictures on it. They complained a lot. And here they were. They were enslaved. Uh, they had nothing good going for them at one point in their history. We look at that they had God. Of course, that would have, was enough. But every day was oppressive. And I can't imagine living in slavery as a nation, the oppression that they experienced, no freedom. And they cried about it. And they complained about it. And God does the miraculous. He, he, he did what they could not do without Him. And what only He could do. And He sets them free in spectacular fashion. Ten Miraculous plagues, parts the Red Sea, drowns the pursuing army, guides them through the wilderness, gives them water from rocks, their clothes don't dry out or or wear out, Uh, there's food that comes down from heaven, they have a bright future, the hope of a promised land that God's leading them to simply to occupy and to take with His blessings behind them. They have everything going for them. And what was their response to all of this? Oh, it was to gripe, and to whine, and to complain. Exodus 14, 11, and they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? I mean, here God has done all of this. And it's not just that He did it, and we're talking about it. It's, it's that they, they visually saw it happen. They experienced the benefits from it in tangible ways. And, and all that they could see was what they wanted and didn't get. Two chapters later, Exodus 16, Moses says something that's profound. And it should have stopped complaining altogether. He says, for what the Lord heareth. He says, the Lord heareth. He says, he hears your murmurings which you murmur. And he says these two words, against him. And what are we? He says, you're murmuring against me. You're murmuring against Aaron. You're murmuring against these leaders. He said, but really, you're murmuring and you're complaining and you're disputing against God Himself. He says, your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. And did that stop them? And we know the answer. What if every time that we complained, it wasn't just about our circumstances or about the traffic or another person But what if, in God's eyes, when you complain, He takes it personally? Like He takes it as a personal affront to Him. And perhaps that's the way He sees and processes our complaining, because it was the way that He saw and processed the children of Israel's complaining. They weren't just complaining. They were directing their complaining complaining at God. It was, we don't have enough supplies. We don't have the luxuries that we once had, these, the, you know, these, these nicer foods and, and, and items. We don't have those anymore. We have freedom and a, and, a, and, a, and a great, big, bright future, but we don't have those things. It was about Moses' incompetence. 
You don't know what you're doing. You're a horrible leader. You're a horrible person. It was about the threat of other nations. But God saw through all of that. And he said this through Moses. Your complaint isn't against Moses. It's not about your provisions and your supplies. It's not about your luxury items. It's not about all these things. It's about me. You're murmuring and you're complaining against my goodness and my working and my sovereignty and my world and my involvement in your life. They were expressing dissatisfaction and annoyance for everything he did, everything he had done, and everything he was doing. Let me ask this question tonight. What do you complain about the most? I want you to think about that and be introspective in the time allowed. What do you complain about the most? And you can't take my complaints. I already gave you one, all right? Can't be chilly on your shirt. Just let it come to mind. Some would complain about their schedule. Have to be here, and then there, and then there, and then there. Like, where is the margin? You know, the calendar's too full. There's too much going on. Some would complain about having kids, and the kids in the home, and how difficult it can be to raise them. And some would complain about having no kids. Some would complain about the gas prices, even though they're beginning to slightly fall. Many of the government, money is tight, the house is too small, or too old, or not what I want. It's not laid out right. The boss drives me crazy. The weather is bad. The Wi-Fi is slow. The list is unending. And we all have the things that we complain about. But the problem may not be those things. The problem may just be we've taken our eye off the good things in life. We've taken our eyes off of God's goodness and we've allowed our focus to be on other things. And ultimately, it's not about those things. It's about selfishness. And it's about self-centeredness. And when self occupies the chief priority and the, the main uh, thing that goes through our mind is ourself, complaining is natural and in an abundant supply. We've become the focus. Self-centeredness leads to the constant curse of complaining. If there were such a thing as having permission to complain, and I know the sermon title is a bit misleading tonight, you were hoping I'd give you permission, and, and I can't. But if there were such a thing as permission to complain, perhaps the Apostle Paul would have earned such permission. Paul was called to preach by God. He wasn't just called to preach. He was uniquely equipped and positioned to make a large impact on the world, like on a massive scale. And Paul had this dream and this vision that wasn't just about reaching Israel with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul took the great commission of Jesus, and he even took what the disciples themselves could not do, and he took it to a much broader, broader platform, and he had this vision of reaching the Gentile world. And who was at the top of the food chain in the Gentile world? It was the Romans. And Paul had this vision that he would go to Rome and he would preach before magistrates and kings. Like he was going, he had this vision and the man was uniquely educated and, and, and equipped and strategically positioned to do all that. And so here he has this vision and this plan to go as a preacher to Rome. And he went to Rome and he preached, but not in the, the position or station in which he imagined. 
He went there as a prisoner. And he wasn't just any prisoner. He was locked up for two years, waiting for his potential and eventual execution. During this time, he was chained to different Roman guards on eight-hour shifts. Now, if it were you, or maybe I could speak for myself tonight, if it were I that was placed in that position, I would be very tempted to complain. Like, God, why are you allowing this to happen? I've done nothing but serve you. I single-handedly wrote most of the New Testament. <laughs> like, come on. I've reached countless numbers of people. And what have I earned? Shipwrecks, being beaten, snake bitten, left for dead, stoned. And now, monotony and a hard floor and a bad food and chained to a stinky soldier. And instead of complaining, the Apostle Paul writes to other people who were not living in chains, who had not and never would experience the depths of discomfort and pain and humiliation that he had and was actively experiencing. And he writes this to them, do all things without murmurings and disputings. And if a guy like that wrote that to me, that'd be a tough pill to swallow. And he did. It's exactly what he did. He wrote it to me and he wrote it to you. What's the idea of murmurings? It's uttering complaints in a low voice or sullen manner. It's grumbling. It's complaining. Disputings. To contend in argument. To reason or argue in opposition. To debate or altercate. It's like the fight for the sake of fighting. And he says, do all things. Wherever you are. And it doesn't matter the context. He, he didn't contextualize this. He just said, wherever you're at, do all things. Whatever you're doing, and it doesn't matter what it is, do it without murmurings and disputings. Do it without complaining. There are so many reasons that we should not complain. Intuitively, we know it's bad. It, 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 it's a sin that feels good for a moment. And we know it feels good for a moment. It's why we do it. But there's a horrible price on the backside, both psychologically, physiologically, and spiritually. There's an article written by a man. Um, it's by a man. <laughs> His name was Dr. Travis Bradbury. I thought it was on the article and it wasn't, it wasn't on there. Uh, Dr. Travis Bradbury. He's an author and researcher. He's written a lot of books on emotional intelligence and, and things like this. And so he, he's a neuroscientist and he wrote this article called How Complaining Rewires Your Brain for Negativity. Uh, among the things listed that are negative impacts, he says complaining damages other areas of our brain uh, like it shrinks the hippocampus. It's an area of the brain that's critical to problem solving and intelligent thought. Literally when you complain, it, 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 you're not thinking intelligently, and the more you complain, the less intelligent you become. Um, it contributes to other things like, of course, releasing cortisol into our bodies, raises our blood pressure and our blood sugar, and, and that extra cortisol impairs our immune system, makes us more susceptible to high cholesterol, diabetes, heart, to be, heart disease, obesity, makes the brain eventually more vulnerable to strokes. Um, it, it has a t just a, a, a lot of ill effects associated with it. I think one of the most devastating effects of complaining 
is that it loops. Complaining begets more complaining, and more complaining begets more complaining. So it's Wednesday night, so I'm going to take this luxury of just reading a few paragraphs here. Uh, it's a little more informal service. So he says, complaining is tempting because it feels good, but like many other things that are enjoyable, such as smoking or eating a pound of bacon for breakfast, complaining isn't good for you. Your brain loves efficiency and doesn't like to work any harder than it has to. He says, when you repeat a behavior such as complaining, your neurons branch out to each other to ease the flow of information. And that, this makes it much easier to repeat that behavior in the future. So easy, in fact, that you might not even realize you're doing it. You can't blame your brain. Who'd want to build a temporary bridge every time you need to cross a river? He said it makes a lot more sense to construct a permanent bridge. So your neurons grow closer together, and the connections between them become more permanent. Scientists like to describe this process as neurons that fire together, wire together. Repeated complaining rewires your brain to make future complaining more likely. Over time, you find it's easier to be negative than to be positive, regardless and we're, we're going to come back to this in a second, regardless of what's happening around you. Complaining becomes your default behavior, which changes ultimately how people perceive you. And, and that's a whole other thought in and of itself. Here's the point. Repeated complaining hardwires physiologically our brain to complain more. Negativity begets more negativity, begets more negativity. And it's like we're dooming ourselves. Every time we complain, we become more and more of a complainer. The more negative you are, the more likely your brain is going to be triggered to continue to be more negative. When you expect bad to happen, you get what you expect. Social scientists call that confirmation bias. If you expect it to happen, to be bad, then bad's going to happen. I have a preconceived idea that I don't handle study interruptions very well. There's a real reason for that. It sets back my mind. So I read this in a book years ago that every time this man, his name's Gordon McDonald, he, he wrote a book many of you may have read, um, Ordering Your Private World, The Resilient Life, books like that. And he, and he said every time that he was interrupted when he was studying, it set back him back 15 minutes in study. And that is, I feel like that's true for me. When I'm interrupted, I have to go back in time. It takes me about 15 minutes to get back to where I was. And so this morning, I have this preconceived idea that I don't respond well to, <laughs> to interruptions. And it, I don't even fully realize it. But I'm studying this today, and I'm reading this article, and I'm thinking about it. So I start my study this morning for today's message at 7 a.m. today, and I'm at home, and I've got a little desk in our bedroom, and I'm working there. And within 15 minutes, four times, one of my two boys interrupted me. <laughs> now that is called purposeless parenting right there, all right? It was normal dad stuff. And I start this internal dialogue of frustration and complaint and negativity that begets negativity and a poor response to those interruptions. And it all started because I had a preconceived idea. You may have decided before you got out of bed this morning that you hate the rain. What does it do to your day when you decide before you get out of bed you hate the rain and you get out, walk outside, and it rains all day long? 
good day or bad. Cognitive bias. We've, we've determined it before the day even started. You decided before you came to church tonight that you had a hard day and you don't want to be here. But, but the pastoral staff scheduled Awana on Wednesday nights to trick me into the service. <laughs> and the kids want to be there. Now, that's, that's only partly true, all right? And, and, and the kids want to be there. And so you brought that negativity here and into your interactions with other people. And you decided you're not going to like something and your preconceived ideas are confirmed because your expectations are already negative about that individual, about that circumstance, about whatever it might be. You're thinking before you get there that I'm going to have a negative reaction or response to this. And oftentimes our brains don't even realize it. And this was the problem that Israelites faced. They complained in captivity. But what did we just learn? Complaining loops. So what happens? God does the miraculous. God is good to them. God delivers them. God does all these things for them. But what did their complaining do? Did it stop? No. Why? They had hardwired their brains to complain regardless of the circumstances. And so they complained when they were free and when life was significantly better than it was beforehand. Why? Because they had conditioned themselves with that response. They had trained themselves to see the negative regardless of how good it was. And there's this point here, and I want you to capture it. God could never be good enough. It didn't matter if they needed water and it miraculously appeared from a rock. It, it, it didn't matter if they needed guidance and he provided a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, which is pretty cool. Like, like that's a lot better than the GPS on my phone. It, it, it didn't matter if they needed clothes and the clothes they had on never wore out. Like this is high quality stuff here. It didn't matter if they said we're tired of the bread and God gave them flesh. It wasn't ever good enough. God could not be good enough. It didn't matter how much gold and silver they stole from the Egyptians. God wasn't good enough. Okay, question tonight. Can God ever be good enough for you and to you for you to stop complaining? Can God ever be good enough to you and for you for you to stop complaining? Another question. What would he have to do to be good enough for you? Like fill in the blank. What's he got to do? I don't know. Maybe like save me from hell or, or, or send his son to die. Maybe if he like died for me. What would he have to do? See, it's always our choice whether or not we will break out of the cycle of seeing the bad or if we continue muddling through on default, seeing the bad and evil in life, because there's plenty of it. We live in a sinful world. If you want to see bad, you'll never tire of seeing it. It's everywhere. It's in all of us. Pastor, we had this deacon and trustee training last night, and Pastor used this just fantastic illustration. He's talking to the guys and, 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 the, and the wives there. And he said, you know, the closer you get to people, he said, the more you see in them the flaws that are present. So he used this illustration. He said, I can look at myself from 100 feet away. He said, and I look pretty good. 
And then he said, but I get 10 feet away from the mirror. And all of a sudden, I don't look as good. And I don't remember exactly how the illustration went. This idea is I get one foot away or closer. And then I start to look not very good. Okay, that's true for all of us. That's, that, 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 that's, that's true for every single person that's here tonight. You can see the bad in other people too. Because the closer you get to them, they might look great on social media. And that institution or, 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 or that club or, or that lifestyle might go great on social media. The closer you get to it, the more you see it's warts. Our church looks really cool on Instagram. <laughs> but get to know the people here. Get to know the pastoral staff here. Uh, get to know me. You're going to start to see flaws. There's plenty of bad, but there's a lot of good too. And you're going to find what you're looking for. It's cognitive bias. And we have to train our minds to see the good and right instead of always choosing to focus on the negative. And there are two big thoughts here tonight I want to pull from the text. And they're not new to any of us. But we need this constant reminder. And the first is simply this. Instead of complaining about the circumstances in your life that you don't like or that displease you, make every effort you can to change what you can. Give it your best. Like, I, you know, I don't like this. Okay, then number one tonight, do what you can to change that circumstance. If you can change it, something's not right, and there's something you can do, then do it. It is not wrong to notice something that's not right. It's not a sin to say, that's not okay, or I don't like that. It's a sin when we complain about it and then do nothing about it. That's not okay. It's not acceptable. It's okay to see it. It's not okay to not do anything about it. David comes up on the scene. And here's these soldiers, they're spread out. And here's down in the valley, this big dude, and he's blaspheming God, and he's playing psychological warfare against the, against the Israelite army. And David says, he is abusing you guys. He's shaming you. He's playing psychological warfare. And not just that, he's blaspheming our God. Somebody do something. Nobody? Well, I just came here to deliver some food to my brothers, but I'll go. Like, I can throw a rock real good, so I'll go. So suit me up. He didn't just complain. He saw the, the problem, and it wasn't wrong to point it out. You guys are doing nothing. And he said, okay, then let me take care of it. And the rest is history. From, from that moment of saying, I'm going to do what I can do, even if it costs me something dearly. He didn't complain about it. Didn't wring his hands. Didn't post to social media what a bad person Goliath is. The challenge is this, bring your best. And do what you can to help fix it. Set it right. Don't complain about not enough lost people being saved at church. Witness to one. How many people are getting saved at your church, brother? Like, I get those questions. Like, it's none of your business. Like, this is our church. It's the Lord's work. It's my job to witness. And you need to witness. Don't complain about it. Don't complain about your spouse. Work on being the best one that you can be. Don't complain about your finances. Work hard and spend less. Come up with a plan. Get help. Don't complain about trash in the parking lot. Pick it up. But there are times when we are unable to do anything about it. And this is, this is the heart of the message. 
when things are over our heads. I can't change people. And there are things that I can't do. And there are real limitations that we have. And so when this happens, if you can't change the circumstance, then you have to change your perspective. You have to alter your attitude. You have to see things in a different way. You have to think differently about the problem before you. Here Paul is. He's chained to a Roman soldier in prison. He didn't choose those circumstances. And I would bet if he could change them, he would. And so he only had one alternative to change his perspective. And I want you to look at verse 17 with me in the text. He says, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy. I joy. Okay, three, Greek, three words to start the sentence here. I'm going to pick this apart a little bit. He says, yea and if. Yea and if is a Greek, it's a, it's a phrase in English, but it's one word in Greek. And it's Allah. It sounds just like the Muslim Allah. It's, not, it's spelled a little different, but it's Allah. And the idea there, it's a conjunction. It means nevertheless, and the idea is even if. So it says, yea and if. And we could just say this in, in modern vernacular. We'd say, even if. Well, even if what? Well, even if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, what does that mean? I be offered is another phrase that's one Greek word, and the word there is spendo. And the idea is exactly how the Greek word sounds. It's being an offering that is completely and fully poured out. It's a word spendo that when Paul wrote that, his audience would have understood in a way that maybe we wouldn't. And so, the children of Israel, up to this point, they were making these sacrifices to God. So they would bring an animal as a sacrifice to God, and the priest would take the animal, they'd sacrifice it, but then the family or the individual would also bring a liquid offering. And it was usually the most expensive thing that they could afford. So it would be something like wine, oftentimes it was even honey. And they would take this liquid, and upon the offering, they would take it, and it would they would pour it all out. So what happens when you put liquid over something that's really hot? Well, steam evaporates into the air, and it becomes this, to God, a sweet-smelling savor as the smoke comes out. So this is what Paul says, even if I'm poured out, even if I'm spent, like my life, everything in me, even if it takes everything from me, he says, you're the sacrifice, and I'm poured out on it. And then he says, I joy. I joy. I don't think he was talking about his death here. I think he was talking about his life. He thought he might die, but he hadn't yet. But the man had lived a life of being poured out. At this point in time, his body was broken. It wasn't just his body. It was his heart, his soul, everything in him. He lived for the Lord and he lived for others. It was his daily life that was a sacrifice. In Romans 12, 1, he would say, he would say to others, 
he would say, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, not a dead sacrifice. He wasn't talking about martyrdom here. He said a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Your life every single day, not just on Sunday, not just on Wednesday night, but every day of the week is to be an offering to God. And then he says these words, even if you're chained up to a stinky Roman soldier, spendo, give it all. And when you've given it all, don't complain about it. Now that's a challenge. Because some of us can give and give and give, and then we complain about giving. And he says, no, 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 that's not how this works. I want you to spendo, offer your body's living sacrifice, and don't murmur. And don't dispute. This is a really big deal. I'm, I'm going to come back to the, re, the big reason why at the, end of the, at the end of the sermon here in just a few minutes. But I want to ask this question. How do you not complain? How do you not murmur? You have to change your perspective. Like, this is it. Like, I'm going to do everything I can. But when I bump up against my limitations, and I can't do anything else, and I've prayed, and I've worked, and I've gotten the counsel, then I have to change how I view the situation. Change your focus. And this is what Paul did. This is the most enduring way. Jesus Christ and the gospel were the focus in Paul's life. We can change our focus about things. We can have uh, attitude adjustments, use pop psychology today and all that. But the problem with psychology is psychology is focused on the self. And that's not going to get you but a few days of, re of remedy and therapy. See, and Paul said, no, no, no. That aside, he says, don't let self be the focus here. Set, aside, set the, the worldly psychology aside. This is about Jesus Christ. And this is about the spread of the gospel at all costs to me. His priority wasn't his job. His priority wasn't his travel plans. It wasn't his retirement. It wasn't his comfort or new car or finer clothes. Those things aren't evil and they're not wrong. It just wasn't Paul's focus. It wasn't the main thing for him. It wasn't the priority number one. He's chained to a Roman guard, and the guards are changed out every eight hours. And I want you to look at chapter 1, verse 12 with me. Because he says this to the church at Philippi, and it lends clarity to our understanding of what he's saying here. He says, I would you should understand. Understand what, Paul? Brethren, the things which have happened unto me. Okay, wow, he's had a lot happen unto him. And we would look at his life and kind of feel sorry for him. Like, Paul, if you're not going to throw a pity party, let me throw one for you. And he says, stop. Don't do that. I want you to understand that the things which happened unto me, verse 12, have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Every negative thing that's befallen me has had a purpose. It might have taken me time to understand it, to see it, to process it, but God had a plan, and He's working His plan. Verse 13, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Okay, here's these guys chained to Paul. Who's the real prisoner? 
Paul says, it ain't me. That dude has to listen to me preach the gospel to him. Eight hours goes by. Paul gets a, gets a, gets a, gets a nap in. Next guy he wakes up next to, hey, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. And the gospel gets spread. What some people would look at and say, wow, Paul, you're in chains. That's what you get for serving God. Paul says, I know. It's not what I planned. It's not what I wanted. But look what God's doing. And the gospel is made known in all the palace. Verse 14. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Here's other Christians, and they're scared. They're scared of what Rome might do to them. They're scared of the repercussions. And they look at Paul, and they think if he can be chained in prison, and he ain't complaining about it, and he's got a good attitude, and he sees God's working, well, that strengthens me. That boldens me. I'm waxing bolden. Use some King James there for you. And I'm going to share my faith too. And I'm going to make a difference. And so Paul's wasn't just individually spreading the gospel. He was empowering others to do the same. He had changed his perspective. And he's watching God do the work. See, it may not be what you want in your life. But God has a purpose. It might be the last thing you would choose, the circumstances you're facing. But that doesn't mean God can't use you right where you are to advance His cause, to make a difference in the life of someone you may not even know yet. So a question tonight, what are you chained to? Some are chained to a painful relationship. Some are chained to financial problems. Some are chained to a hole they can't get out of. Some are chained to health problems. Some are chained to not being able to find a job. Some of us have chains that keep us up at night, our minds wide awake. Some have chains that drive them to tears. So if you can't do something about it, if you can rather, then do it. Pray hard, work hard, get counsel, get help, learn and grow. And if you can't do anything about it, then what's the alternative? Well, Paul would say, change your viewpoint. Like, change how you're looking at it. Have some faith in God. He's great big, and He's working in ways you can't see, in ways you may not understand today. Give it five or ten years. Or like eternity, because that's forever. And you'll understand. Let Him do His work. Change your thinking and look at it through His eyes. Rather than complaining, about something you can't change. change. Choose to see God's power in His presence. Yea, and if I'm being poured out. Yea, and if my life is oozing away. Yea, and if everything that I've wanted to accomplish never comes to pass. Yea, and if those dreams have far passed me by. Yea, and if I've only got days left on this earth. Paul said, I joy and I rejoice. And he said, and I want you to rejoice with me. I don't want you throwing a party for me, pity party for me. I don't want you feeling sorry for me. Yea, he said, I joy. And the very next verse, read it with me. He says to them, wherever the verse is. 
He says, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. Yea, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy, and he says, and I rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. We're going to flip this thing on its head. We're not going to feel sorry for ourselves. We're going to say, we have God and he's good enough. There's nothing more he needs to do in my life today for me to be a happy person. What needs to happen is not more from God. It's different from me. It's a different viewpoint and it's a different perspective. He's still using me. He's still in me. He's not going to forsake me. He's going to work through me. He's still good, even though I didn't ask for this. David killed Goliath and then started a very difficult, very difficult next 10 years for him. And he never really had it easy. He had to fight his whole life, run from Saul, fight the Philistines, contend with his own flesh and sin, his own sons. He had a lot to complain about. But in Psalms 103, he said, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And he tells himself, forget not all his benefits, and there are many. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. Choose. It's a choice that regardless of where we're at, regardless of what we're facing, that we choose to see God's goodness and his working in our lives. We can focus on how good his forgiveness really is. And imagine a life without it. That will change your perspective. See his grace in your life. See how his spirit works, girding up and strengthening your weaknesses. And how he says, in your weakness, I'll come through with perfect strength. You may not like parts of your life, but you don't have permission tonight to complain about them. Paul's testimony cries to us as it did to the Philippian church. Do all things in all contexts and in all places without murmurings and complainings. Complaining. And here's the ultimate reason why. Verse 15. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. If you complain, you waste the pain. You've wasted it. All those tracks you passed out at your job, all those people you talk to, and then you start complaining, and you've undergirded your testimony and your witness for Christ. You're literally reducing the light. And the Bible says there's a rebuke for that. All the good that we do here in this church, 
and the, and the love that we pour into other lives. Paul says, if you murmur and you dispute, you allow yourself to go there. He says, I've made all these sacrifices for you. I have run. He said, I have poured myself out as this offering. I have spendoed, it's not a word, but I've spendoed my life for you. He said, I have run in vain. So all the investment and all the love and all the dollars and prayer and time and work that others have invested into your life is in vain if you murmur and if you dispute. And the gospel of Christ suffers. And we have a campaign this year. Invite someone. And we need to. And, and, and we cast shade on that with our murmurings and our disputings. Brethren, these things ought not so to be, would say Paul. We need to be better than that. There are lost souls in the equation here. Detracts from the gospel. If Paul could resist the temptation to complain, then so can we. The prayer tonight is that God would help us to give our best. And when that's not enough, then to simply change our perspective. Because we don't have permission to complain. But we do have a good God. We have His grace to be grateful for.